Good morning. So last week, we had an opportunity to celebrate our graduating seniors, and got me thinking about uh, way back when, when I graduated. It wasn't that long ago, but it felt like it. Uh, I remember uh, when I was getting ready for college, I applied to three colleges. Two of them were traditional four-year Christian universities. Uh, Judson University was college back then. Uh, and then North Park University, which is the uh, university within our denomination. Uh, but then I also applied to a, a small one-year discipleship college uh, called Covenant Bible College. And I'm just curious, has anybody ever heard of Covenant Bible College? Good. I'm glad a few of you did. I didn't figure more than that um, because it's not been around for a while. But uh, it's another school within, it was, it was within our denomination. Um, anyways, I was pretty young and I was naive in my faith. And uh, I wanted to go where God wanted me to go, so I just decided to put it in his hands. I applied to all, and I almost knocked that over. Uh, I applied to all three, and whichever one that he sent an accepting letter first, that's the one God wanted me to go to, so I would go to that one. Um, but of course, in checking the mail a couple weeks later, I got all three acceptance letters on the same day. <laughs> so I had to make the choice anyways. And ultimately, I decided to go to Judson, uh, and that's what they announced with my graduation and everything. Uh, but then that summer, I worked at our camp up in Wisconsin, Covenant Harbor, and I met a few people that went to this one-year discipleship school, uh, CBC. And through that conversation, I just felt, I knew that this is where God was leading me. So ultimately, I changed my plans. I went to this one-year school, uh, and then I transferred to North Park. So I ended up going to the two that I decided not to go to. So um, anyways, um, the year that I spent at Covenant Bible College was... Uh, Incredibly important. It was, it was life-changing and transformational for my faith. Uh, at, at the time, the, the college had three campuses. There was a, an Ecuador campus, one in Colorado, and then there was one I went to, which was in Alberta, Canada. And the director of the program, his name was uh, Todd Selecta, and um, he taught the primary Bible classes, but he also, through conversation and time spent together, we became, uh, he became a mentor of mine, and we became friends um, over that year, too. Um, and as a, as a side note to that, um, you'll actually get a chance to meet him this summer. He's actually uh, on the schedule to come and preach here in August, so I'm excited to introduce you to him. Uh, but anyways, Todd taught the Bible classes at CBC, so Old and New Testament, and, um, and how he taught it and the things he taught really helped to form and shape how I engaged with Scripture. Um, one of the things that he would do is he would teach these, what he called, biblical principle, postures and principles. These were things that he'd kind of developed, sayings, phrases, out of Scripture, but were more so like these underlying themes. And they were themes that were consistent throughout Scripture. Like any time you read it, you can pick out these themes, and it's going to be true um, throughout. So we can trust in them even now that these are, these are um, uh, trustworthy themes. So we would read the Bible, and we'd go through it, and every time one of these things would come up, we'd be reminded of it. So we ended up memorizing these like, little phrases all year long. And even to this day, as I engage with scripture, sometimes these phrases pop back in my head. And as I was reading this week's scripture in 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25, there was one that was very prominent that I was reminded of, and I wanted to share that with you this morning. The phrase goes like this. In pursuit of our priestly call, we are to pursue tzedakah, which is a Hebrew word. That is, doing what is right regardless of how we feel. In pursuit of our priestly call, we are to pursue tzedakah, that is doing what is right, regardless of how we feel. 
The word tzedakah in Hebrew, it means righteousness, which is a churchy word, so we've heard that one. And it's oftentimes uh, partnered in Scripture with the Hebrew word uh, mishpat, which is the word for justice. The idea being that biblical morality establishes that God created everything, and within this created world that he made, um, there is that which is right and that which is wrong. And no matter our circumstances, we are called to do what is right in God's eyes. You can really see this concept uh, emphasized in the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible, the law, specifically in Leviticus, that talks a lot about uh, how God's people are to live rightly within his presence in the broken world. So the idea was that there was a correct way to live, and if you did not do the right thing, there were certain penalties for such sin. There was something that needed to be done to atone or to right that relationship, such as bringing an offering to God. The challenge for the Hebrew people was this. Do you do what is right because there is penalty for doing what is wrong? Do you do what is right because it means you get to keep good standing with God? I'll say this again. Do do you do what is right because there's a penalty for doing what is wrong? Or do you do what is right because it means you get to keep good standing with God? This concept of Zadaka says that you do what is right because it is right. You do what is right because it is right. No matter how you feel or what benefit you get, it's about integrity. It's about character. It's about your choice of right over wrong no matter what it means for you. And on the surface, this seems like a no-brainer. It seems easy. But what we find in today's passage is a little more complicated. The heart of 1 Peter in this section of uh, chapter 2, verse 18 and 25, Peter is calling for this kind of righteousness and integrity. But the context is truly challenging for us to relate to in our 21st century understanding of justice and morality. This passage comes just after Peter begins addressing how Christ followers are to live within this pagan society, or the society that is not reflecting the kingdom of God. And after setting up this challenge for these these early Christians, he begins addressing individual groups. And he starts with slaves, or more appropriately, enslaved people. Now, because of the nature of this passage, and it talking about enduring and in persevering, even under harsh treatment by their, their masters, we as Americans, with our history of injustice and cruelty of slavery, and then also our, our history of democracy and of emancipation, uh, as we get into this passage and this concept that Peter is talking about, it just doesn't, it, it hits differently. Right? It makes us feel like maybe, maybe he's not talking about what it sounds like he's talking about. Maybe he's not talking about slaves as we know it. I mean, he's saying in verse 18, uh, for them to submit to their masters, not only the good ones, but even the harsh ones. He's saying in verse 19 that it's, it's commendable if someone bears up pain under, under the, the pain of unjust suffering. I mean, simply reading this, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't fit within the construct of justice and righteousness in our world. And I'll give you an example of this. From uh, 2001 to 2011, 
the, uh, the eight movies in the Harry Potter series made a combined $2.4 billion in the movie theaters alone, just in the U.S., not including DVD, merchandise, and theme parks. Um, and so it came from this British author, but there was this David and Goliath-style story of good versus this insurmountable evil. And that fits within our American ethos, right, of, of standing up and doing what's right. One, one of my favorite quotes from the, it was the fourth movie, The Goblet of Fire, um, the professor Albus Dumbledore speaks to Harry Potter after this evil wizard returns, Voldemort, and he says to him, dark and difficult times lie ahead. Soon we must all face the choice between what is right and what is easy. This version of doing what is right, it makes sense. It sells movie tickets. Being brave and standing up against the bully. Doing what is the right thing to do, even if it means laying down your life. We cheer for this kind of hero in our society. The, the, the hero that doesn't put up with injustice and confronts it head on. There are, there are countless movies and stories in our culture about this. You can also see Star Wars or the Marvel Cinematic Universe or even Pastor Stacy's favorite, the Star Trek Universe. These kind of stories, are, they're, what, they're what make this passage from Peter feel a little off or confusing to us. This is interesting to me because Peter's, Peter's also the one that was, uh, he, he was going to jump in front of Jesus and pull out a sword. He ends up slicing off the ear of a centurion just to protect him from, from this unjust arrest, right? But the Peter that's writing this, this is the Peter that also heard Jesus tell him afterwards to put his sword away, which is perhaps, this is why Peter says what he does to these enslaved people. And I also just want to highlight that we need to avoid the temptation of sanitizing the word slaves as well. Uh, it's easy to think, you know, maybe he's just talking about like a servant or, or somebody working within a household, like, a, like an employer, an employee situation. Uh, and I get that temptation. Um, but the idea that, that Peter could be talking about enslaved people like we think of and then telling them to endure it and not retaliate, uh, again, doesn't fit right. We want to read it as just like a servant. Like, uh, and it's actually translated a lot of times as a household servant or one that lives in a house under the authority of like a head of a house. And that feels, feels right. And so you try to change it as you read it in your mind. But, it, but if you choose to set aside our understanding of the word slaves and you set aside the baggage that we carry in the 21st century and you, you dive into the context you'll see a deeper truth that is, is actually pretty extraordinary. Peter's talking within a, a first century uh, society that he lives in, and he's talking to first century people. And yes, slavery was bad then, it's bad now. But we engage this passage within this construct of a first, first century society in order to see this meaning. First of all, it's important to recognize that the first century church lived within a Greco-Roman society, Within the society, Aristotle had established these so-called household codes for these aristocratic men. It was, it was to, uh, to teach them the ways for them to rule over their house, um, and it's specifically in the order of, of wife and then child and then those that worked in the household, those that were enslaved. And, and Peter wrote this letter to this first century church where these aristocratic men would be present with their wives and their children, and those that they had enslaved. 
they would be there too. He's addressing these Christians all together. Who, the, these people who Peter established just a few verses earlier in verse 9 as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, all these nice things as we read them. He even said in verse 10 that you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's established that all of these new Christ followers were to be something new. And then as we learned last week that he begins to establish how they are to live as godly, righteous people in the society and not in God's kingdom. And then he transitions from talking to the whole to talking directly to groups of people. And who does he start with? He starts with the least of these. Those considered owned, not free. Enslaved people. They they were considered slightly less than human because they did not have their freedom. These were people who were either, either sold into slavery by uh, servants or their, their parents or their, their parents' owners, or they were uh, people that were captured during the conquest of the Roman Empire, or perhaps there were people that were in so much debt that they had to sell themselves to those they were indebted to, or maybe even they had done something wrong, had to make it up to society. Whatever it was, um, no, no matter their circumstances, um, they... they Whatever conditions they had, um, they were considered the least. Even the poor and the widows would be considered higher in status if they had their freedom. Then as Christ's teaching begins to uh, teach something different and to spread, all people are invited into a new society of these kingdom people where all people are free in God's eyes, and called to God's purposes. Uh, the early century church, uh, they began to see this system, and they did something about it, but at this, at this time, that had not been fully realized. There was much persecution. They were still within this society. There were, there were no structures in place to free enslaved people to, to break their chains. Emancipation was not an option, legally speaking. They were stuck in the system. And Peter... In addressing this new society of people in God's kingdom, the the very first people he directly is talking to here, he specifically talks to the enslaved people. I mean, think about the, the room of listeners. The enslaved people wouldn't have been addressed before, maybe not even looked at, let alone their wives, who's in the passage we'll get to next week. But he talks to the least of these first. I'm assuming he, he probably caught him off guard. He he's directly addresses how they are to live as Christ followers within their world, within their circumstances. So if you think this passage doesn't fit with the other biblical teaching about the enslaved and prisoners being set free, I would say think again, because what Peter's doing in speaking to them, he humanizes them in the eyes of their masters by speaking to them. And that has Jesus written all over it. He breaks their chains simply by talking to them. Not as slaves in this pagan society, but as fellow brothers and sisters that are part of God's royal priesthood. 
Now, I want to establish this reality because I want you to see that Peter is not making an argument for the enslaved people to simply be good slaves and do as their masters tell you. On the contrary, Peter is speaking to them as co-equal members of the kingdom of God. And he's speaking to how they are to live and follow Christ's example from within their context. And he does this by acknowledging in verses 18 to 20 that, that not all of them are in seemingly healthy situations where their, their masters are treating them with dignity or respect. He acknowledges that some are being treated harshly, that they're beaten, unjustly punished, and made to suffer, which sounds a lot more like the slavery that we are aware of in our American history. But he's not making an argument that this treatment is right, nor is he making an argument that it's somehow the enslaved people's fault. In fact, he's probably making these masters in the audience pretty uncomfortable, subtly calling out how harshly they may or may not be treating these people, that they've been treating as less than human, and telling, he's telling them to be better than them, to have more integrity and character than than these aristocratic, so-called godly men. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? He's not vocally addressing those that exert their power and ownership over these people, but in bypassing them and speaking directly to these enslaved people, he's still subtly subverting the system and calling out their wrongdoing. So Peter continues, and he then establishes his primary argument in verse 20. Uh, in, in 21, he says, But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and enduring it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this beating, th- this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Or in other words, Peter is highlighting this biblical principle of tzedakah, righteousness. Do you see it? He's not speaking about the master's behavior, about, about the actions. He's speaking about the actions of the enslaved person, about their character, about their integrity, about doing what is good no matter what the circumstances are. This harkens back to a few verses earlier, the one that we talked about last week in verse 12 that said, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. And glorify God on the day he visits us. In doing what is right, they are sowing seeds of God's kingdom into their circumstances. No matter if they are being treated harshly, he's telling them to remain in what is good. And to not respond to what is wrong by also doing what is wrong. And why should they do this? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. Peter says in verse 23 that they hurled insults at Jesus and Jesus did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. It says he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Peter says in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for what? Righteousness. Tzedakah. Doing what is right regardless of how we feel. He's telling them that they can do what is right because Christ, their example, did what was right. 
This is the guy who's the king of kings, the master of all masters, and he chose to lower himself to serve while he was here. He did some of the same things that servants would have done. He washed feet. He, it was the right thing to do. That's why he did it, and he suffered for it as well. Peter is still talking directly to the, the enslaved people. He then quotes the prophet Isaiah. But he actually makes a few critical changes that I want to highlight. Um, Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. But Peter changes this. He's still, he's still talking directly to them. And, and though the, it, was, it was probably the, you know, who the proper person was in the church that was reading the letter out to all of them, I, I like to imagine it like Peter was looking in the eyes of the enslaved people who have been beaten and harshly treated and telling them that they can live doing what is right because Christ did. Because as it says in verse 24, that by his wounds you have been healed. He changes the pronoun. He doesn't quote directly and say, we have been healed. He, he again is speaking directly to those in the room who know more than any others what it means to suffer, to be pierced, crushed, beaten, and punished. And he restores their human dignity by saying that by, by his wounds, you, you will be healed. By his wounds, the one that faced all these things and still did not raise a fist in anger or retaliate in violence. By his wounds, you are healed. I can't imagine how good that must have felt, how healing that must have been. Well, he doesn't, he doesn't talk about directly subverting the system and slavery and changing it in this passage. The, the last sentence in the passage is perhaps... Uh, in my opinion, the, the most subversive, but it's very subtle. Uh, he begins by quoting the, the last bit of Isaiah 53, 6, the next verse. And it says, for you were like sheep going astray. And Isaiah continues saying that, you know, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But then Peter says, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. I find it interesting that he's quoting this because sheep that have gone astray, they're out wandering, free of a shepherd or anyone to guide them and to direct their path. And um, like it says in, in the original Isaiah verse, that they turn to their own way. And slave people couldn't do that. If they did, they'd be considered runaway slaves or they'd be punished or even put to death for it. But again, he's, he's telling them that it's not about subverting the system and, and breaking free from slavery and doing whatever they please what he says is that they, as followers of Christ in the kingdom of God, as God's chosen people, in following Christ's example, they instead have returned to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. This word overseer is um, it's a word for somebody that's put in charge of the, the, the duty of making sure something is done rightly, like a, a bishop at a church or like a guardian. And perhaps this statement itself is the subversive call. He's telling them that no matter who your earthly master may be, you belong to the master of all masters, the good shepherd. You do what is right according to him, to God who calls you to do what is right. So to recap, Peter speaks first to the least of these. He tells them to pursue tzedakah, righteousness, 
doing what is right no matter how they feel. He tells them to do this regardless of their circumstances. And he says to do it because Christ, who is their example, did what was right. So what does this mean for me and you? I think as if we've engaged this passage, I think we made it clear that uh, we're speaking to a different people in a different context um, than we live in now. And we, we have to consider that framework. So we have. We've considered the first century perspective. So what now? What is the takeaway? What underlying truth is there? That's why this phrase came to my mind again, this biblical principle. Pursuit of our priestly call, we are called to pursue tzedakah, doing what is right regardless of how we feel. That's what we can do. But what does this mean in a world, a world like we live in now? It just seems really complicated. Where everyone is defining rights by their own standards, seemingly. Some even claiming that their version of right is God's right. What do we do in such a morally ambiguous society? What do we do when the problem just seems overwhelming and too big to manage? I think a piece of the answer has to be discovered by each of us individually in our context, within our household code, within our work environments, or our school, or community. But I'll close by sharing the truth that this passage has reminded me of this past week or so, and uh, I'll do so by sharing another, another quote from another old fictional wizard, this time Gandalf the Grey from The Hobbit. So one of my favorite quotes from this series is when he says this, Some believe it is only the great... Or only great power that can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. I have found that it is the small, everyday deeds of ordinary folks that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. Small, everyday deeds that confront injustice. Doing what is good and what is right. It may seem at times useless in the face of such terrible circumstances, such horrific things like these enslaved people Peter's talking about had to endure. But it's a matter of Christ-like character and integrity to do what is right. That is, even small acts of kindness and love, that will undermine the power of darkness. When we all do this, it makes a difference. It's like something that I have my boys say to me every day before school. Before they leave, they know I'm going to ask them, how are you going to be in school today? And they answer, good. I'm like, well, what does that mean? And they say, to be kind. And I ask, to who? And they know to say, to my friends, my teachers, and even the people who don't treat me nice, everyone. And I ask, how do we do this? How do we be kind? And they reply with our words and our actions. This is the type of character I want my children to have. To be kind in what they say and how they act, no matter what. Because that is what is right. That is what is reflective of the character of the one who we follow, Jesus Christ. So may that also be true for you, to do what is right, even if it's just small acts of kindness and love. And in doing so, may we live into our call as God's holy people, Subtly subverting the unjust systems that still exist in this world and bringing his kingdom here on earth. Will you join me in prayer? 
Lord God, we humbly come to you knowing that this world is broken. And yet we are called to do what is right anyway. It's a high calling to stand up to injustice through peace and not retribution. It's a maturity of character that you call us to. And yet we know that such a difficult task is is possible because you sent your son into this brokenness to not only show us how to live rightly, but also to endure such harsh treatment and death on our behalf for the times that we don't do it right. God, thank you for such grace. Help us to know each and every day how we might do better, how we might be able to inject a little kindness into our corner of the world, a little more love, a little more grace of our own. Help us to remain steadfast and to trust in you, the the God of justice, the king of all kings, the master of all masters, the one who knows the burden and the difficulty of this world better than anyone else and yet still remained in what was right. Help us to not go astray, but to find our hope and our strength to do what is right regardless of how we feel. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.